Who can say where the killer roams? When the blood flows, it's slaying time. Slay away. Slay away. Slay away. behind your favorite horror films, lore, gore, and every kill in between. Welcome back, Slayers. I'm your host, E.L. King, and on this episode, we'll be discussing the iconic slasher film A Nightmare on Elm Street, directed by Wes Craven and released theatrically on November 16th, 1984, opening in 165 cinemas across the United States. Nancy Thompson and her friends suffer violent nightmares featuring one common element, a badly burned man with a glove made of razor-sharp knives for fingers on his right hand. When the teens begin to die in their sleep, Nancy realizes that she must stay awake and try to uncover the truth to stop Freddy Krueger from claiming any more victims. The kids of Elm Street don't know it yet, but something is coming to get them. There's something out there, isn't there? <laughs> We just see cuts happen. What did that, Lieutenant? I don't know. There's a coroner got to say. He's in the jaw and puking since he saw it. They're gonna kill me for sure. Did you do it? There was somebody else there. He was locked in a room with a girl who went in alive and came out in a rubber bag. No one knows where it came from or who it will visit next. Nancy? something wrong with you. You're imagining things. Nightmare on Elm Street. Do you believe in the boogeyman? No. Whatever you do, don't fall asleep. She's the only one who can stop it. If she fails... I'm your boyfriend now, Nancy. No one will survive. have eyes and last house on the left a new masterpiece in fantasy terror nightmare on elm street joining slay away for the first time is director of the upcoming horror short night shift carly boone and we do have some more information about night shift before we move on to anything else so carly welcome thank you so much for being here Hello, thank you for having me. <laughs> I'm so excited that you can make it. Are you ready to chat horror with me today? I am so ready. I'm so excited. Yes. Okay. I'm really excited too. So 
tell us a little bit about yourself. What's your role within the horror community? Yeah, so like you said, I am a horror director. I uh, directed, co-directed a uh, short camp slasher uh, that came out in 2020, almost two years ago now. <laughs> I can't believe it. Night Shift is currently in production, and right now there is a Seed and Spark campaign that you can support to be a part of the film and the filmmaking process. So uh, let's go ahead and give you a little preview of Night Shift. misogyny and small town conservatism, all while navigating that mortifying in-between of young adulthood. Hi, I'm Marla Lee and I'm playing Cheryl Bennett. We believe that the horror genre is a visceral storytelling medium that allows filmmakers to explore social issues in an entertaining and cathartic way. Night Shift takes inspiration from horror films of the past while simultaneously challenging the sexism and hyperfeminization of women on screen. While our film is set nearly 40 years in the past, Cheryl's struggles throughout the film speak upon many of the same issues and inequalities that women still face today. Because no matter what decade it is, every girl can relate to the feeling of wanting to bite someone's head off. We already have a strong vision and a passionate casting crew on board, but we still need support from community members like you to make Night Shift come to life. Your contribution will go directly towards paying our cast and crew, locations, renting equipment, and of course, bringing the 1980s to the modern day. That means vintage costumes, retro production design, and fully practical special effects that Rick Baker would be proud of. Thank you so much for supporting women in horror and independent cinema. The full moon is upon us. Are you joining the pack? more about Carly Boone's horror short Night Shift and the Seed and Spark campaign. We'll have all the information on our website, slayawaywithus.com. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> well, how did you discover your love of horror? So I have, uh, I've always been into horror since I was a little kid. Um, I would say the first few films that really struck me when I was younger was uh, I watched The Grudge when I was probably about 10 years old, the uh, the American version. And uh, I saw The Ring and Child's Play all kind of around that same time. Um, it's kind of one of those things where like, you know, my mom maybe knew I shouldn't be, be watching it, but let me watch it anyways. And it terrified me, but also totally like, just totally drew me in. And uh, I really love horror comedies, especially I grew up on uh, like a bunch of 80s comedies specifically and finding that uh, uh, where those two combine with uh, horror and comedy and, uh, you know, fear and uh, 
like comedy just are so intertwined for me that uh, that was kind of what really made me fall in love with uh, like all these campy over the top ridiculous like 80s horror movies especially like Nightmare. Oh definitely Nightmare has a lot of it there's a lot of good moments and a lot of really scary moments too so I gotta know tell me why you love A Nightmare on Elm Street. Oh man there's so many reasons Um, the special effects for sure. Um, that is, I love, I love the special effects, any practical effects in horror movies. That's specifically why I'm drawn to this era, because I think a lot of people would agree this is probably the peak of practical effects in horror films. Um, but there are just so many good uses of practical effects and the kills in this film are magnificent they're so cool they're so fun they're so over the top they're so ridiculous and I absolutely adore it and the characters too um obviously Nancy Thompson is the template for the final girl and uh upon rewatching this seeing how active she is in protecting her future and trying to get out of this almost fate that it seems she has of being killed by Freddy. Um, I love how active of a role she takes in, in this film and how much she is really trying to prevent the next kill from happening and trying to save herself and save her friends. I see there was a special effects designer, Jim Doyle, who worked on the wall to ceiling <laughs> mechanics for some different things i think probably the scene with tina and then um some other stuff like that did he work on all of the effects to your knowledge um i'm not totally sure but i do know um he had a role in uh i know for sure he had a part in doing the the that moment where freddie is kind of peering through the wall at Nancy. Um, they actually, he fabricated uh, a new wall out of, what was it? It was like a uh, plastic wrap or, oh man. Oh, a spandex, spandex. So he fabricated a spandex wall and he was actually the one that was playing Freddy in that scene, kind of peeling through that wall over top of Nancy. Um, but yeah, I, I believe he had a hand in pretty much all of the special effects in this film. And there was another, I don't know if it was uh, Doyle, but there was another special effects artist that actually plays Freddy at the beginning of the film in the opening shots of the glove being made. Oh, really? Um, and that person, it was because they were the only person that knew how to like work the knives apparently oh yeah yeah um so i i wish i remembered their name off the top of my head but um yeah it's a lot of interesting stuff and uh the special effects especially um where tina is dragged across you know the ceiling and things like that i think is one that holds up really well to this day yeah i was actually reading that they um they used a rotating room in that scene to film that and uh, Craven and the cinematographer were like stationed in a uh, in some kind of vehicle while the room was rotating around them to get that shot. So there's there's a lot of really interesting methods that they used to get some of these scenes done, um, and they're all they all look 
amazing in the film. They really do. A group of Midwestern teens in Springwood, Ohio, fall prey to notorious but mysteriously forgotten child killer Freddy Krueger, played by Robert England. The disfigured, burned man with blades on his fingers preys on the teens in their dreams, killing them in reality with each sacrifice in the dream world. After investigating the phenomenon, Nancy Thompson, played by Heather Langenkamp, begins to suspect that a dark secret kept by her parents and her friend's parents may be the key to undoing the dream demon. But can Nancy and her boyfriend Glenn, played by Johnny Depp in his first film role, solve the puzzle before it's too late? We honestly don't know. By the ending of the film, it's a bit ambiguous, and although one of our favorite final girls, Nancy, defeats Freddy, the fourth act of the film leads me to believe that the film wasn't intended to jumpstart a franchise. I don't know how you feel about this, but those are just my thoughts. That's just kind of the, <laughs> the sense that I get from that. But, you know, it's interesting because I also read that Craven had planned to have this, like, very happy ending, um, but that executives, as it always was at the time, uh, put in the alternate ending. Yeah, I was reading about that, too. So apparently, yeah, they had these executives that were kind of fighting for there to be this twist ending, and they ended up drafting a bunch of different endings and uh, filmed a few and apparently they finally landed on this, uh, the ending that ended up being in the film where Freddie pulls Nancy's mother through their front door. And apparently Craven just thought it was so hilarious that they couldn't not make that the ending. So, yeah, it's very strange. And people call it the downer ending. And then also there's the funny bit with you can see that it's a sex toy. Absolutely. Uh, or blow up doll. It's one hundred percent a <laughs> blow up doll. The window. <laughs> um, well, just to kind of do a quick overview of the main cast. So we have John Saxon, who plays Lieutenant Donald Thompson, Nancy's father, and John Saxon. We all know from his various roles in horror. Um, very popular. Been in a lot of, I think, Italian horror films, and then he was also in Black Christmas, playing Lieutenant Fuller. Once again, <laughs> he, he always plays a, a lot cop. of cops. <laughs> um, and then Ronnie Blakely, who plays Marge Thompson, Nancy's alcoholic mother, who really, it's interesting, Nancy's mother, at the beginning of the film, this time I watched and noticed she's very like calm and put together and soft-spoken, and then she very much gradually, her personality changes over the course of the film and uh, to the point where she's just in tatters by the end, right? I also felt that her scene where she dies or falls asleep or is killed by Freddy is also very weird. Is sucked into the abyss of hell. <laughs> right. Yeah. I was like, oh, man, we're getting sucked into this. We had two bed sucking scenes and <laughs> it was more than we bargained for. Um, and then Heather Langenkamp, like we mentioned, plays Nancy Thompson. Um, I think she was... Not necessarily a newcomer, but uh, definitely a more fresh-faced actress at the time. Um, Amanda Weiss plays Tina Gray. I'm going to pronounce his name completely incorrectly. Uh, Juice Garcia plays Rod Lane. Is that correct? I don't know if you know that's, if that's correct. Johnny we'll Depp plays that. Glenn Lance, and Robert England again, plays Freddy Krueger. Craven filmed A Nightmare on Elm Street on an estimated budget of $1.1 billion, which I was surprised by. Uh, the film grossed 
57 million worldwide and was met with rave critical reviews and is considered to be one of the greatest horror films ever made, spawning a franchise consisting of several sequels, a television series, a crossover with Friday the 13th, and various other merchandise. A remake of the same name was also released in 2010, and I have some thoughts. I don't like the character changes. <laughs> so they, they very much took the, this iconic character of Nancy Thompson and, and made it a very different uh, character. She's not as strong of a character as the original Nancy. Are you talking about a uh, new nightmare? Yeah. No, oh, no, okay. no. Uh, a Nightmare on Elm Street that released in 2010. Oh, just the full the full remake. The remake. I have not seen the that one actually. remake. There's there's <laughs> new characters. There's no Glenn anymore. There's Quentin Smith is like the most useless character of all time in film. I'm sorry, Kyle Gallagher. Um, <laughs> but uh <laughs> aside from the film's uh stunts, polyester and alone in the dark, this was one of the first films produced by New Line Cinema, who at that point mostly distributed films, and the film actually saved the company from bankruptcy and led it to become a successful film studio. Um, I don't think it's still around today, uh, but the studio at the time was even nicknamed the house that Freddie built, which I thought was kind of cool. Yeah. <laughs> Right, and I think the New Line Cinema, let me check here. They went defunct in like 2008. Oh, is New Line not around anymore? When you Google things, the first question is, is New Line Cinema dead? Oh. <laughs> and, uh, so February 28th, we can pronounce New Line Cinema officially dead. Uh, February oh, 20th, they, 2008. They merged with Warner Brothers in 2008. <laughs> That's there it. There we go. Um, well, just last year, now in 2021, the film was selected for preservation in the United States National Film Registry by the Library of Congress as being culturally, historically, or aesthetically significant. And I definitely heartily agree with that. So I'm surprised it took so long for it to make it in there. There's other films um, that got in there a lot sooner. <laughs> yeah, this one's been around for almost four decades now. I can't believe that. Let's have a little chat about the tropes in this film. It's credited with using many of the tropes found in low-budget horror films of the 70s and 80s that originated with John Carpenter's Halloween in 1978 and led the subgenre to be called the slasher film. But we know Halloween borrowed a lot of its tropes from Black Christmas that came out in 1974, which in turn brought several ideas from Italy's Yalo films to North America. So as Tenbaki, my Yalo expert, told me we don't want to give Halloween or Black Christmas too much credit for influencing <laughs> the slasher genre. I mean, they did. Obviously, they did. We can't dispute that. But a lot of these um, really interesting tropes actually came from Yalo films. Yeah, no, that's that's uh, a really very valid point about uh, giving Black Christmas um, its due because it really was one of the earliest American slashers, at least. And I think it definitely gets overshadowed a little bit by Halloween. Right. It's not even mentioned in, I think it's Men, Women, and Chainsaws, um, a very popular book having to do with <laughs> the tropes of mm -hmm. the time. Um, the film includes a morality play where sexually promiscuous teenagers are killed. Critics and film historians state that the film's premise is the struggle to define the distinction between dreams and reality manifested by the lives and dreams of the teens in the film. In recent years, critics have praised the film's ability to transgress the boundaries between the imaginary and real, toying with audience perceptions. And that's not, not something I'd ever really 
put too much thought into watching the film before. Yeah, definitely. I uh, I also really um, something that I did notice again on this uh, this last rewatch last night was um, how empowered all of the youth is in this film and obviously like this is very much targeted to teenagers it's got you know all the leads are teenagers but I love how the teens in this film are kind of having to wade through these uh these adults who are kind of the they they are the reason that they are experiencing these terrible nightmares, they're being chased down by Freddy, but the parents are just so absent uh, and they are just so, they just refuse so much to see uh, what exactly is going on with their children and they're just so removed from it that um, there's really a lot of like, it's really all up to the teenagers. And I, I really love seeing this as I, I think a lot of it, um, this film is often seen as like a like a feminist horror film, obviously, because of Nancy, and the final girl trope. Um, but it's also really definitely like a youth power kind of film. And I, I loved that. It's interesting that you say that because that just made me think of a quote from like the Merchant of Venice, uh, that there's that famous quote now the sins of the father are to be laid upon the children and that's so relevant here and i never had thought about it before and it's this generational thing where we're often each generation is having to deal with the i don't know the right word the baggage or the it's almost like generational trauma kind of right it's it's not really trauma that has been like inflicted on the parents it's trauma that the parents are inflicting onto their children, um, which is interesting because they, you know, their their whole reason for murdering Freddie in the first place is to, so you know, they're trying to protect avenge their, children. their children, exactly, right? yeah, like avenge the children that have that have been murdered by Freddie, but also to protect any other children from being harmed in the future, and in doing that, they are actually putting their children in almost more harm's way because now he's in their dreams and they can't get away from him. They can't get away from him in reality or in the, the dream world. Exactly. It's really interesting. And there's a few tropes that I just wanted to call out um, to discuss. And so one is obviously death by sex, right? Um, That was really common in the 1980s. Tina dies after having sex with Rod Glenn's death is a variation on the trope. It happens after he watches Miss Nude America, which I think we can like lightly credit Death by Sex for that. But um, also, there's a lot of obvious like sexual frustration with Glenn and uh, Nancy. <laughs> you can kind of definitely, see in, yeah, yeah, in the that- scenes earlier where he likes they're trying to make out or whatever, and she's like, "Not now!" Like it's Tina. Yeah, she's like, "We're here for Tina." <laughs> yeah, that that was definitely something I noticed when I rewatched this was how um yeah the sexual frustration between the two of them we really don't ever see glenn and nancy honestly be romantic at all like i don't even know if they kiss in this film um i think they do kiss a few times but by the time things are in full swing they're very preoccupied by mm -hmm. this whole thing yet still glenn is a, a disbeliever like he's not fully bought into this idea of what's happening even though 
there's lots of evidence to the contrary, right? He's willing to believe the theory that the adults have come up with about mm-hmm. what's going on. So uh, then there's also the deadly bath. So um, Nancy falls asleep in the tub and Freddie's bladed glove pops out of the water, but she wakes in time for nothing to happen. But when she dozes off again, he suddenly drags her under into a huge like underwater space that he created with his dream powers and she almost drowns. So interestingly, and and if you haven't seen it, uh, watch it just for this. Fast forward if you have to. Craven actually copied this entire bath sequence from his horror film Deadly Blessing from 1981. And it's almost a shot-for-shot replica, except the bladed glove is a snake. No way. I've never seen that movie. I had no idea. He he plagiarized himself. <laughs> <laughs> he I was like, well, you borrowed a sequence from a film that did not do well and is not really that great <laughs> of a film, to be honest. Um, and also it has like a really sort of uh awful almost transphobic ending but it's you know i i'm trying to forgive craven <laughs> for for that it was 1981 but you know, <laughs> um it's 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 interesting when you watch it and you're like man it's almost like really just absolutely shot for shot of the bathroom scene with nancy and um it's interesting to see that he took what he did in deadly blessing and really adapted it and made it something that is now this really iconic scene yeah absolutely it sounds like he knew he knew it was a good idea and he just needed to find the right the right place for it exactly um and then sleep deprivation of course so a lot of the the drama and horror in the film comes from the fact that a person has to sleep sooner or later no matter how drastic the measures they take to stay awake And when they do sleep, Freddy will come for them in their dreams. So I think when we get towards the end of the film, Nancy says that she's going on day seven without sleep. But it's okay because she read that the longest somebody has gone is 11 days. That's insane. I also, I love the moment. Something that just made me chuckle when I was watching this was her her mom uh, puts her to bed and uh, picks up all of her coffee cups and everything that's all strewn around her room and then Nancy immediately gets up and pulls out a full plugged in coffee pot from under her bed and just pours herself another cup of coffee oh yeah the coffee pot from under the bed was interesting I'm like I don't know how mom didn't see it it's a really tight squeeze in there so <laughs> it, it, it was great um and then another trope is really um and I don't even know if we'd consider it a trope so much it's a Gainix ending, and the ending really changes everything. The movie uh, and its ending really raises a ton of unanswered questions about the rest of the film. So was the whole movie a dream? Did Nancy ever escape into the real world? Um, she, you know, she supposedly takes Glenn's advice and defeats Freddy, walks through the door, and all of a sudden we're in another dream sequence. So was that um, part of a dream? Is her mother dreaming? Was it just a regular nightmare not generated by Freddy? Um, There's some theories that this was actually Nancy's mother's dream in which she then died. And then the whole sequence where she sucked into the bed happens in in the real world. Ooh, I I like that theory. (laughs) Yeah, it's it's super interesting. And that really helps to explain what the fuck (laughs) the end of the film is doing. Because it's really confusing when you've watched the whole thing. You're like, yeah, okay cool she got him um but nancy's diary in the second film freddie's revenge describes her friends being killed and it's said that her mother killed herself 
um, or got killed by Freddy. So it can be implied that the ending was Nancy's mother's nightmare. So furthermore, Nancy herself returns in the third film, Dream Warriors, and specifically talks about her friends having been killed. And this should technically resolve the situation. Should is like the big word there. But watch the ending of the original Nightmare uh, while knowing that Nancy survives. And it's still like a really weird ending that doesn't make any sense. And um, these twist endings were are kind of a common trope in um, a lot of films beyond horror. Yeah, definitely. And I think it's also important to know that Craven did not intend this to be a franchise. Um, so the twist ending, I think, you know, I, I still can't really wrap my head around exactly what the ending is saying. It's kind of like it's a dream within a dream within a dream. It's like this whole Inception thing going on. But um, it makes sense that they were okay with letting it be very ambiguous because there was no intention for it to become, you know, this multi-film franchise. Um, and apparently uh, Wes Craven didn't direct the second film, which I have not seen, but I I didn't realize that he didn't have his hand in that at all. So that's, that's I'm also... I'm not sure that he directed anything beyond uh, New Nightmare, if I'm... Yeah, I think he Correct. I think yeah. he came back for the for the third one and New Dream Nightmare. Okay. Mm -hmm. And then I think he was done after that. <laughs> it makes sense. <laughs> and I think after this, he'd done quite a few horror films. And that's why when Scream rolled around, he had turned it down several times before um, being convinced by a small child <laughs> to do the film. Um, this makes it really impossible to discern what parts of the film were actually dreams and which weren't. And when you watch it through that lens, it's super interesting to try and be like, okay, this is a dream. This is real. This is a dream. It's, this is real. And the ending of the film, the whole sequence where um, she's pulled Freddie out of her dream into the real world or so we're led to believe, like, is she actually not in the dream world anymore? And the ending would sort of subvert the idea that she's actually pulled him out of the dream at all. Yes, it, it definitely is very confusing and very ambiguous, but I don't think you need to know all the answers and you don't need right. to be able to differentiate <laughs> what's a dream fantastic. and what isn't to enjoy it. To enjoy it, exactly. Like it, it almost makes it more fun not knowing, <laughs> in my opinion. In a sense, me, the film ends when she walks out her bedroom door. <laughs> I don't really care about the rest of it. Um, yeah. And that it's like very off the wall, but... The other thing that this film has is a lot of other horror film shout outs, which is cool. So Nancy is seen watching The Evil Dead from 1981 on TV while trying to stay awake. Um, on the commentary for the film, Wes Craven noted that the sheep in the opening shot um, where we're in the middle of Tina's dream is actually a shout out to Luis uh, Buell. Um, and another shot is a shout out to Stanley Kubrick. So I don't know which shot this other shot is. That is the Stanley Kubrick shout out, but I need to try and figure it out. Um, and then Heather Langenkamp noted that her performance in the sleep clinic was a shout out to the exorcist. I can absolutely see that. Yes. I was actually, I was kind of thinking about that when I was watching it. She's really thrashing around <laughs> for sure. Yes, I, I love how Craven always loves to um, incorporate other horror uh, horror aspects in his in his films, and he loves to uh, make make little uh, nods to other 
other horror films. We got to talk about the final girl, Nancy Thompson, though. That's like, yes, because she she's she's a big deal. <laughs> she is my favorite final girl. Absolutely fantastic. Definitely a final girl that um, helped define that trope and also set it up as a trope that is not one that common people commonly think it is uh, because Nancy Thompson is a strong final girl. Nancy Thompson, I'm sorry, Laurie Strode, but is not the Laurie Strode of final girls, right? Um, no, she's not hiding in a closet. <laughs> exactly. So Wes Craven actually conceptualized Nancy after a conversation he had with his daughter, Jessica, where she questioned him over his clumsy depiction of the heroine in Swamp Thing from 1982, particularly over the scene in which the heroine Alice Cable, played by Adrian Barbeau, is running and she trips and falls stereotypically over nothing. So upon watching, his daughter had remarked, you know, just because I'm a girl doesn't mean I'm clumsy. You don't have to have them falling down. That is so... Um, wow, getting called out by his own teenage daughter. Craven commented that this was a common trope in filmmaking and that he wanted Nancy to be the start of young heroines eliminating this concept. He wanted Nancy to depict a positive portrayal of women, specifically in his films. And as a result of this conscious effort, Nancy has been called one of the most progressive female representations in the teen horror genre. So um, Craven had also commented about the heroic aspects of Nancy, stating that the heroic thing about Nancy and Nightmare was that she refused to sleep. She refused to accept her parents' lies, her boyfriend's urging to ignore um, all of it and just, you know, get in bed, go to sleep, her girlfriend's urging to have um, some drugs, apparently. <laughs> uh, I, I don't remember them having a drug discussion, but maybe you do. I don't know. I don't think so. <laughs> Maybe I just totally zoned I feel out. Like that it came part. up, but it was like it's like very lightly referenced. But I mean, this is what Craven says, so it must be true. Um, <laughs> so she stayed awake. She took responsibility for being a conscious human being, and it's the one thing that saved her life while everybody else slept and died. The people who opt for that course of self-willed consciousness of facing painful truths and dealing with them are the only people that will ultimately survive. Um, and he said, all others are chaff. So I'm like, okay, yeah. You have to make a conscious decision to to fight and not roll over. Oh, absolutely. And she is she is doing that consistently throughout the film too. Like you said, it's not just a, a Hail Mary kind of situation where it's right right when she has no other choice to fight back, she finally fights back. It's a conscious decision made by her throughout the entire film to actively seek out Kruger, um, try to save Rod, save Glenn, save her own life. Um, I loved seeing her uh, once she decides that she's finally going to try to pull Freddie out of her dream, seeing her set up all those booby traps and go full home alone on him. It's just, it, it warms my heart. It's so fun to see her get get that set up and that was like her her uh you know she had been like studying and like reading all about survival tactics and booby traps and all of that um and she even talked to glenn about it yes how to macgyver the house 
Yeah, and just seeing her actually like take those skills that she learned and um, actually use them to try to defeat this villain is just so empowering. And I absolutely loved it. Definitely. And it's funny when she goes to try and save Rod, just to touch on that really quickly, that is the only death aside from her mother that we see from the reality perspective versus the dream world perspective, because we don't see Rod dying in his dream. We see him dying in real life. So I'd be really interested to know what his dream was or the dream sequence, because it was a little underwhelming. I think his death, it's, it's one that it's kind of like, well, was that a dream is it real like is the whole thing a dream i know it it, because um it's uh just depicts the the sheet wrapping around his neck and pulling him up and all that kind of stuff so i'm curious to know what was actually going on in the dream i would have loved to see what was going on in his mind when he was being killed and what what was actually maybe killing him in his dream um yeah that's that is very interesting that he's uh his death is really one of the only deaths that doesn't take place in that kind of yeah surreal dream world well actually you know it's interesting because even with glenn we see it from the reality perspective we don't see glenn's dream either that's Um, yes that is true actually yeah the only time we actually see the death in the dream and then as we get into the sequels then we actually see more kills in the dreams and what happens in reality afterwards so it's a little easier to discern what's real and what's a dream but um i hadn't really thought much about that previously but um just kind of i have a lot of um cool information on nancy and different conversations about nancy as a character um and sort of what she means to the horror community as a final girl so um nancy's characterization along with Camp's performance has received a lot of praise american literary critic john kenneth highlighted her intelligence and insightfulness um, for her original appearance in the film. Mirror describes her dysfunctional home life as attributing to her preparedness and courage to face the truth of Freddy Krueger. Now, um, one of the interesting things uh, during this time period, it was pretty popular for people to start getting divorced. And Nancy is from a different kind of divorced family like her father doesn't live at home she lives alone with her mother her mother does most of the caregiving um and her father being a police lieutenant isn't around very often and he's very no nonsense right so um but mirror attests that her turning her back on him in the end of the film counters against her character trait of facing things so um also, in a 2011 thesis, writer Kyle Christensen wrote that Nancy is one of the more strong representations of feminism in cinema, and he cites her interactions with several male characters, noting that she is not submissive to any of them and is therefore self-reliant and in control of her sexuality, unlike many other heroines within the genre. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I like I said, I think... Um the kind of arm's distance that she keeps uh, from Glenn throughout the film where they're, you know, they, we see that they have a romantic relationship, but it's definitely not a huge part of her character. Um, She's definitely very independent. And uh, uh, she, she almost seems like she's kind of her mother's caretaker in a way too. Like she definitely has to um, kind of be the adult in a lot of these situations. And I think that's also, um, probably coming from her uh, 
you know, being in this broken home, her mother is clearly using uh, substances to kind of numb herself. And uh, uh, I think it's a really interesting representation of uh, just like American adolescence, especially at this time, um, and kind of dealing with, uh, yeah, this first wave of like, uh, this first generation of children who are coming from, you know, more like broken families. Yeah, definitely. I have to agree with you there. And speaking of Professor Carol J. Clover, who we mentioned earlier, um, the creator of the final girl theory describes Nancy as the grittiest of the final girls in her 1992 nonfiction book, Men, Women, and Chainsaws. And Clover's inclusion of Nancy in this theory, however, has been both agreed upon and challenged. So writer Shannon Keating states she surpasses the stereotypes of this trope coined by Clover and refers to Nancy as Freddie's equal in audience popularity. And I think really Nancy is probably Freddie's only equal um, throughout the series, just in my opinion. But similarly, writer Don Sumner dismisses Nancy's association to this trope altogether, analyzing her as an antithesis to it, despite following the chaste aspects of it. So Sumner also states the victimization of women in horror films does not apply to Nancy due to her proactive nature. And that because of this character trait, she broke the mold for horror heroines. And I definitely have to agree with that. Yeah, absolutely. She definitely, I almost uh, kind of have a hard time deeming her a final girl because it almost has this connotation to it that it is, you know, like a, like a damsel in distress um, kind of character, which Nancy right. absolutely is most not. Of my, <laughs> most of my favorite final girls are ones that are very like strong, intelligent, independent. Um, and uh, we're actually going to get into another very closely tied final girl representation that I think I hadn't made the connection to before. But um, psychologist Kelly... Uh, Buckley compared Nancy to Dorothy Gale in The Wizard of Oz in that they both find their inner strength within their dreams to conquer what's troubling them in the real world. And I hadn't thought about that before and the fact that Dorothy's entire trip to Oz were meant to believe was just a dream after this uh, tornado that had occurred. But um, author Barbara Creed highlighted the dysfunctional relationship that Nancy has with her parents and how her intense yearning for parental love leads to her demise in a nightmare on elm street three dream warriors and i think that's really unfortunate film critic james berardinelli writes that a nightmare on elm street is nancy's story rather than freddie's and attests similarities to sigourney weaver as ellen ripley in alien 1979 due to her resourcefulness i hadn't made a correlation between ripley and nancy before but i can definitely see it now and the same goes for um characters uh like Aaron from Your Next for example very strong we we don't go into that film knowing that Aaron is a survivalist <laughs> but um there's a resourcefulness in all of them that sees them through whatever situations going on yeah definitely and i i thank you for bringing up that wizard of oz uh connection i never would have thought about that before but that's a really interesting comparison to make between the two of them for sure right I would never normally compare Nancy to Dorothy Gale <laughs> but it's interesting when you think about it obviously when I think we when we see Dorothy's dreams in this really bright 
beautiful technicolor. We don't think of them as nightmares, but they really are. Let's step into a segment we like to call Creep Me Out, where we explore the true events and lore that inspired the film. We found a fascinating article by Jeff Separito exploring the inspiration for A Nightmare on Elm Street. Craven decided there is no greater time of psychological peace in human existence than during sleep. Ruining the comfort of the subconscious, he thought, would be the most horrifying thing possible. And then Craven read a series of curious newspaper reports. In 1981, news of a medical mystery began showing up in the New York Times and Los Angeles Times. A few dozen people unexpectedly died in their sleep for unknown reasons. The men were young, healthy, and curiously enough, all of Asian descent. Papers dubbed the phenomenon Asian Death Syndrome, and the body count crossed 100 by the time A Nightmare on Elm Street hit theaters. The condition went on to become known as Sudden Unexplained Death Syndrome, or Brugada Syndrome, and for quite a while confounded medical professionals as to its cause. In Craven's film, the victims were pastel-clad teenagers with 1980s personalities and little more to worry about than hitting up the shopping mall. In reality, the victims of this sleep-death phenomenon were Hmong refugees, all male, who had fled the killing fields in Cambodia during the genocide of the late 1970s. They survived the Khmer massacre, fled to America, and acclimated to American life only to die in their sleep without possessing any noticeable health problems. When Craven read about this phenomenon in 1981, its curious nature was enough to prompt investigation by the CDC and was becoming a cultural concern for all Hmong people living in the country. As it turned out, Hmong refugees in America weren't the only ones suffering from the condition. Healthy Asian men worldwide were dying in their sleep with inexplicable frequency, but the American refugees seemed to be particularly susceptible. Back in 2014, Wes Craven articulated a story about a specific Hmong refugee family, which really pushed the idea of Freddy Krueger to the forefront of his imagination. The family fled the killing fields and came to America. Their young son began having terrible dreams. He told his parents he was afraid that if he slept, the thing chasing him would get him, so he tried to stay awake for days at a time. When he finally fell asleep, his parents thought this crisis was over. Then they heard screams in the middle of the night, and by the time they got to him, he was dead. He died in the middle of a nightmare, Craven said. Brugada syndrome is now detectable and preventable by modern medicine, but the question of why it so viciously attacked Hmong refugees in the 1980s has never quite been nailed down. Furthermore, others have suggested that Freddy Krueger is some version of a sleep paralysis demon or waking nightmare. So let's highlight some of the really interesting scenes or our favorite scenes from A Nightmare on Elm Street. In March 1981, <laughs> Tina Gray awakens from a nightmare wherein a disfigured man wearing a blade-fixed glove attacks her in a boiler room. Her mother points out four mysterious slashes on her nightgown. Oh, yes. So she, she says this quote and she says, cut your fingernails or stop that kind of dreaming. And maybe I just like I think I maybe just zoned out very briefly when I was watching this, but when I first heard her say that and I didn't realize at first that Tina had all the slashes in her 
uh, on her nightgown, I thought her mom was making some kind of snide remark about her masturbating in bed um, because she wakes up and she's in this just like she's just freaked out yeah exactly like literally a cold sweat and I'm like okay what did you think your daughter was doing (laughs) then we we talked about how um there's this sexuality with the teenagers and exactly and that totally plays into it even more when you think about what her mother says and turn it into a reference towards um teenagers you know expressing their sexuality or experimenting for sure yeah I don't know if it was intentional or not but I I like that it kind of has that double meaning in that quote for sure I thought that was it was an interesting little snide remark for her mom to (laughs) make (laughs) well the following morning Tina's best friend Nancy Thompson and Nancy's boyfriend Glenn Lance console her Um, they're driving to school in their car together and um, it's interesting because Tina is telling Nancy about the dream and Nancy is talking about her dream and she says something like, oh, yeah, one, two, Freddie's coming for you, something like that. And she's like, yes, it reminded me of that old jump rope song. And I never really noticed before because it's a little muffled while they're talking to each other. I don't think you're meant to hear it fully. Um that they're referencing that really popular song that we all know now, the nursery rhyme. And then that ties into Freddie's backstory and this back and their own backstory of their parents and, and the child murders in the neighborhood. Yeah. I, I, I was always, um, I I'm interested in this nursery rhyme. Was it, uh, I don't know if it actually like explained it in the film, but was this a nursery rhyme that was started when, like before Nancy's parents killed Freddie? I think so. I think it's something that probably came up as sort of like a uh, an old wives' tale or urban legend yeah, kind of a thing. Yeah. Um, how something like that will develop over time. And then nobody really, they don't really remember what it's from or what it's referencing because they were kids, but it's something that was around on the schoolyard because the parents can't possibly control everyone and what they say, mm-hmm. but um, it helps keep this idea of Freddie implanted in their minds, even though it's something that's dormant and that they don't really remember. So um, because I don't know when I think in later films we're led to believe that the parents had, they all had kids before the, these teenagers and that they died. Right. Um, or that just that, other kids in the neighborhood died. It yeah, can go either way. <laughs> I was, yeah, that was another thing where I was just like a little confused on, but it when sounded... When I watched it again, I was like, okay, so it wasn't one of your kids when the mother is explaining, um, but it was kids in the neighborhood and all the parents to protect their kids decided that they would do X, Y, Z. So was Nancy actually alive when this happened? That's what I'm confused about. Yeah, I'm like, were they small children when this I think we can speculate on it quite a bit. (laughs) Um, But so Nancy and Glenn stay at Tina's house when Tina's mother goes out of town. Let's check out the sleepover and Tina's death scene because it's definitely one of the best moments in the film. See, I told you you'd be feeling better. All day long I've been seeing that guy's weird face. Hearing those fingernails. Fingernails? It's amazing you saying that. That made me remember the dream I had last night. What'd you dream? I dreamed about a guy in a dirty red and green sweater. 
Well, what about the fingernails? Oh, he scraped his fingernails a lot. Actually, they were more like finger knives or something. Something he'd made himself. But they made a horrible sound. Scream. Nancy, you dreamed about the same creep I did. That's impossible. Why is she so bothered by a stupid nightmare anyway? Because he was scary, that's why. Somebody there? the hell is that? a fantastic scene like we talked about where tina is being thrown all over the room and there's just blood everywhere and then when she does finally smack down on the bed it's almost like there's this explosion of blood underneath her (laughs) which was really extreme and there's actually i think um four seconds that were cut out of tina's death um and six seconds that were cut out of glenn's death in order to get an r rating instead of an x rating Oh, wow, so really? They, they did eventually the six seconds, or excuse me, they took eight seconds out of Glenn's death 
And eventually over time, six seconds were added back to Glenn's death in the VHS cut of the film, but the Tina stuff has never been recovered. <laughs> so um, I'm just really interested to know what the rest of that scene that would have made it X-rated was. Um, Me so, too. That's probably yeah. the most gruesome death in this film, in my I opinion, so is well. it's Tina's Despite death. the buckets of blood coming out of Glenn's bed, Tina's death is really disturbing. Because you see Tina's like body, like actually thrashing around. At least you don't see Glenn; you just see the the aftermath of Glenn, right? And uh, so Rod flees the scene as Nancy and Glenn awaken and find Tina bloodied and dead. But this is interesting because everyone except for Glenn, I think, during this time period is sleeping because I don't know that Glenn actually fell asleep on the couch downstairs, and Nancy is asleep in Tina's room. Because uh, we can see the crucifix that was above Tina's bed from earlier in the film. And this is when we get that great shot um, of Freddie sort of at the same time that he's attacking Tina, lingering in Nancy's dreams and trying to push through to, um, I don't know, mess with her. But she just freaks her out. On. He, knocks, he knocks the crucifix off the wall, which I think ties into this idea of him being a demon. Yes, I I would agree. I, I like that analysis. <laughs> At school, Nancy falls asleep in class and dreams that the man chases her to the boiler room where she is cornered, and she deliberately burns her arm on a pipe to escape. The burn startles her awake in class, and she notices a burn mark later on her arm, and she's, like, just screaming and freaking out in class. But everyone understands. The teacher is very understanding. So um, one of the things I wanted to call out, this was the first time that I noticed it on this rewatch, that the woman playing Nancy's teacher is super popular in horror films. Like, she's an icon for horror films. Who is she? So Lynn Shay is an American film, television, and theater actress. And she's had this wonderful career over 40 years. And she's somewhat of a, not a scream queen necessarily, but she's in a lot of horror films. So she was in all the Insidious films. She was the medium. Um, and uh, she is in The Midnight Man. She's in The Grudge from The New Grudge from 2020. She's in Ouija. She's in Room for Rent. She's in Dead End. She's in Wow PG um, Origin of Evil, again, playing a medium. Um, she's in a film that I watched recently called The Final Wish. She's in Dreamcatcher. She's in Critters. She's like she's in so many horror films. She has this really wonderful um, career in horror. And she's also in New Nightmare as well. Wow. Okay. Very cool. Yeah, so check out Lynn Shay, and and then you see her. She has a small part as the teacher in A Nightmare on Elm Street. And even in that, she's fantastic. And at first, I didn't recognize her, but I recognized her voice. So um, she has a very distinctive voice. So I recognized her voice before I was like, oh, hey, that's Lynn Shay. So um, definitely recommend checking Lynn Shay out. Um, after barricading the house, Marge explains that Kruger was an insane child murderer who was released on a technicality and then burned alive by the parents in the neighborhood um, seeking vigilante justice um, or private justice, as they say in <laughs> one of my favorite horror films, Silver Bullet. I just rewatched that, so I had to call it out. I was like, oh, it's private justice. <laughs> so um, Nancy realizes that Kruger, now a vengeful ghost, or I still think Dream Demon is is the appropriate um, 
dream demon works. <laughs> yeah, he is killing her friend, her and her is trying to kill her and has killed her friends out of revenge to satiate his psychopathic needs. So um, Nancy tries to call Glenn to warn him, but his father prevents her from speaking to him. Glenn falls asleep and is killed by Freddy in a really amazing and iconic, very bloody scene. There's way more um, blood in that scene than there is in the human body. <laughs> so, um, but it's super interesting. And I think the way that they shot that scene was to shoot it upside down to get that effect. So, oh, the, the blood geyser? Uh, just, yeah, with the blood just spraying uh, <laughs> upward. It's actually spraying downward. They just shot the scene upside down and then flipped ah. the picture right side up. So, um, yeah, it's really interesting. <laughs> so, um, unfortunately, but, but actually the whole sequence of him being sucked into the bed was also really interesting. And we're meant to believe that he has a waterbed, I think. And um, waterbeds are just dangerous in general. So we all know. We all know that. Um, so let's see. Nancy puts Marge to sleep. Um, her at this point, her mother is drunk all the time, right? There's a fun moment, and I think a really popular one-liner now from the film uh, that's happening either while Glenn is dying or just before Glenn is killed when he falls asleep. Glenn. Don't fall asleep. tries to call. Nancy and her father go upstairs to find a burning Kruger smothering Marge in her bedroom. And after Dawn extinguishes the fire, Kruger and Marge vanish into the bed, which is still kind of confusing to me personally. <laughs> I agree. But, um, it, it's a really odd one because I'm like, okay, so like he was on fire. So what did she like? Because it looks like the corpse, like she burned up, right? Yeah. Yeah. No, he like eviscerated her. <laughs> Yeah, so we never, like, essentially Nancy's mother disappears, and shouldn't there just be a burned body or a burned corpse on the bed or something? Um, That's one thing that was a little, well, extremely ambiguous. <laughs> but uh, when Don leaves the room, sorry, Don is Nancy's father, if anyone's confused, but uh, Kruger actually rises again from the bed behind Nancy, and realizing that Freddie um, is powered by his victim's fear, she calmly turns her back to him, and Kruger, after she, like, says this whole thing that Glenn kind of 
told her about. Um, Kruger, she takes her power back, right? And then Kruger evaporates when he attempts to lunge at her. The evaporation special effect, not great, but that's the only really bad one. And, and the bed sucking thing with her mom that you're going to get. Yeah. <laughs> in my opinion. <laughs> There's only a few, so, few poor, poor special effect choices. Yeah. Only a few that didn't really live up to the test of time. So Nancy then steps outside of her room and all of a sudden she's outside of her house in this bright and foggy morning where all of her friends and her mother are still alive. Nancy gets into Glenn's convertible to go to school when the top suddenly comes down and locks them in as the car drives uncontrollably down the street and you can see that the top of the hood is actually like that ugly red and green color of freddy's sweater and then three girls in white dresses playing jump rope are heard chanting freddy krueger's nursery rhyme as marge is grabbed by krueger through the front door window and pulled in through the window that's where we get like the weird sex doll but that and then the film ends I love that ending so much. It just makes me crack up every single time. I'm really glad that that's the one that they chose to go with. Um, apparently, Freddy is only in this film for a, a total of seven minutes of screen time. Yeah, seven minutes. It's which I, I always think is fantastic. very interesting. <laughs> yeah, and I think that's, uh, you know, that's kind of common with, like, slasher movies especially, like, they typically don't get a lot of screen time. I feel like Freddy actually gets more screen time than the typical slasher villain would um, because they're not trying to like obscure him in any way, really. Um, but I, I, I think he makes an impact with the screen time that he has for sure. And Robert Englund is so good and so devilish in this movie and he just brings the perfect amount of camp to this role he it's interesting because even in the beginning there's this gremlin like mischievousness in the cackling and the giggling and the and the long spaghetti arms right and before <laughs> before england brought a little more i want to say i don't want to necessarily say bravado but like more of that um uh, i don't want to say it this way but kid kitty diddler persona to the character in <laughs> incarnations of the character in the sequels like this was more of a like he's just straight up a child murderer mm -hmm. yeah but he's also was, like a mischief maker that was something that craven actually like is quoted on really liking about robert england was like he's not afraid to like just act truly demonic and like just just be uh you can just like you can tell that he um just he's not afraid to seem like he would actually go out and murder children and he's just very very authentic in this role and uh something yeah, that gets i get a lot more campy as the sequels go on yes even in this one i mean he, it is i think also because you know, there's so much surrealism in this film and there are so many more opportunities to get really fun and creative kills because anything can go. You don't have to, you know, be bound to reality. You can really, Freddy Krueger can do literally anything he wants. Um, so I think there's just a lot of fun and uh, there's, you can just be a lot more imaginative with the kills in this film because of that. Um, another little fun fact that I thought was interesting was, um, I can't find his name, but the actor 
who actually played Jason Voorhees in the later uh, uh, Friday the 13th films, um, was actually originally going to be cast as Freddy um, because Craven was kind of originally looking for this larger kind of beefy guy to play him. And uh, he ultimately obviously went with Robert Englund, who's a little bit smaller of a guy. And I think it kind of, I think choosing him definitely adds to the comedy of Freddy Krueger, which I is is my favorite part of that character and why he's my favorite slasher villain is because he is so campy and over the top and ridiculous to watch. Let's talk about how we would rate the film. So the film has a 95% approval rating on Rotten Tomatoes and is considered by many as one of the best films of 1984. This is where we do our bloody knives rating. So you get five bloody knives to rate the film with. And I want to hear your rating and your thoughts on the film. I mean, how can I not give this one five bloody knives? Honestly, (laughs) this is probably, in my opinion, an almost perfect horror film. Um, I'm not even a huge, huge slasher horror person i love like monster movies and body horror is my go-to um but as far as slasher films this is easily my favorite um i love the character of freddy krueger i think he's so fun he's so enigmatic um i love the character of nancy thompson i think she's extremely progressive really broke the mold for what a final girl can and should be and uh i think it's it's just an incredible film all around i think the special effects are all top notch i think they all still really hold up um a great balance of terrifying and hilarious which is exactly what i look for in horror films um yeah five out of five honestly (laughs) (laughs) um i know my rating for this film is always actually four out of five and i think it's fantastic obviously it's um culturally significant it's a great film it has a fantastic representation for the final girl in nancy um the campiness the mischievous and having a little bit of fun with our super gory scary horror is great and Freddy Krueger is a very iconic character. Um, I think some of some of the things don't hold up super well, and I don't. And there's those certain sort of gaps in the story that I don't love, but I still think it's a fantastic film, and everyone should watch it. And there is one line that I think is really important, and that's "What the hell are dreams anyway?" <laughs> and um, I don't know if it's Glenn or Rod that says that, but um, I know it's a conversation that Nancy's having in. Um, I think it's a really interesting thing to explore and this film definitely brings it up. Awesome. Yeah, no, I, I totally agree. I think it's definitely, you know, there it's, it's from 1984, like it's dated a little bit for sure. Um, I think there are, you know, a few changes that could be made to modernize it a little bit, um, for like 2022 standards, but overall I for sure think that this is a a horror film that everyone that loves horror absolutely needs to watch and have in their their arsenal 
I will say that many attest that Freddy Krueger is a demonic reincarnation of his former murderous self when the prolific child murderer was burned to death by a vengeful mob of Springwood citizens for the crimes that he committed. The dream demons appeared before him and granted him the ability to enter and kill in dreams, provided that he had ample fear to use as a power source. So um, whenever a would-be victim defeated Freddy, the dream demons resurrected him to continue his work. And the dream demons, uh, excuse me, the dream demons are this overarching antagonist within um, the A Nightmare on Elm Street uh, film franchise. So I think more of what he is is explained as additional films come along. But the dream demons are a trio of malevolent demons with a primary goal to break down the barriers between the dream world and the real world, seeking out depraved humans to act as their agents in spreading chaos and horror. So I thought that was interesting. But um, one other big thing about this film as I was watching it, and it's like I knew this, but as I watched it uh, last night, I'm, I'm like, okay, cool. Springwood, Ohio. Here we go. Palm trees everywhere. Right. <laughs> <laughs> Every time I saw a palm tree, I was like, oh, because I lived in Los Angeles. Yeah. <laughs> I'm like, okay. <laughs> and um, I'm pretty sure one of the shots is near the Hollywood Forever Cemetery as well um, when they're doing Rod Lane's death scenes. I'd have to look it up, but I'll, I'm pretty sure all of it, similarly to um, Halloween, was shot in los angeles california yeah i i i think they did film some of it in ohio from what i read at least but i know the high school that they filmed at was definitely in los angeles because they felt it's the same high school that they filmed they should have just said that it was a group of teens in los angeles exactly like it's it didn't need to be midwestern teens in ohio and the fact that they kept shots in with a bunch of palm trees planted in the background as if people weren't smart enough to know that palm trees don't happen in Ohio. Yeah. I don't know. <laughs> but it's just one of those things that is kind of funny as you as like we move forward in time from when this film came out and it's like, oh yeah, that palm tree stuff is it just gives you kind of a, a chuckle when you're watching the, the film. Yeah, I don't know. It was just really funny. <laughs> um but Gosh, Carly, thank you so much for, you know, coming on and talking with me about A Nightmare on Elm Street. It's such a great film, and I've been dying to talk about a classic slasher. Yes. I'm I'm so glad you could join me. I'm so glad we chose this one. This is definitely one of my all-time favorites, and it was a great reason to force myself to go rewatch it again and discover all these new things that I never noticed about it before. 